Good morning to everyone. We are back in the book of James, chapter 4, picking up where we left off a couple of Sundays ago. And as you are turning to the book of James, chapter 4, I want to uh, share something with you that I read recently from one of Alistair Begg's books. Uh, he tells the story of a, of a young man who was invited to preach at a famous church in Edinburgh, Scotland. It was actually where Alexander White was pastor for many, many years. It's a very famous church. And this young man invited to preach for the first time. Well, it's about time, they asked me. He secretly thought to himself. It's about time, they asked me. With great exuberance, he began to work feverishly on his sermon and to inform people how excited he was to preach. This is a message people need to hear, he assured everyone he met. The day finally arrived. Confidently, the young man ascended the steps into the great pulpit, set his manuscript before him, and begun, began to utter his finally crafted opening paragraph. But within moments, the congregation became an indistinguishable mass of humanity. His sermon notes became an undecipherable blur, and his mouth became so dry he could barely speak. He drew his sermon to a hasty conclusion and descended the steps out of the pulpit with his head down, looking at his shoes. A wise old elder in the back of the church leaned over and whispered to his wife, if that young boy had come up to the pulpit the way he had gone down, humbled, he would have gone down from the pulpit the way he came up, exalted. Much wisdom in those words. And much wisdom for us this Lord's day. If we go down, if we go down in humble repentance before God, He will raise us up. That is the principal message of our text in James chapter 4. Follow along as I begin reading in the opening verse. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. 
Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. In these verses, James leaves us in no doubt as to the cause of quarrels. We see it in verses 1 through 5. And James leaves us in no doubt as to the only solution for quarrels. We see it in verses 6 through 10. And what I'm going to attempt to do today is summarize the content of these verses by firstly walking you through five steps. One, two, three, four, five. They correspond to five blanks at the top of the sermon notes in the worship guide. I'm going to walk us through five steps summarizing what James identifies as the cause of quarrels and what James identifies as the solution for quarrels. Within the solution, we're going to add an additional six steps based particularly on verses 6 through 10. And I want us to be clear. What we are going to see applies to your marriage, my marriage. What we are going to see applies to all familial relationships. It applies to relationship with extended families, relationships with extend, the extended family. It applies to our relationships with friends and neighbors. And it most certainly applies in the context of a local church. And so here we go, five steps summarizing, again, the cause of quarrels and the solution to quarrels. In these five steps, I'm simply going to make five statements, first person pronoun, singular, so that we apply it immediately to ourselves. Here is step number one, I desire. There you have it. Step number one, I desire. James speaks of this desire in the second verse. You desire. Skim over the remainder of the verse. What is he, the remainder of the sentence? How does he open the second sentence in the same verse? You covet. What does he mean by desiring? What does he mean by coveting? He has already set his definition in the previous chapter, verses 14 and 16. He is referring to selfish ambition. He is referring to that deeply, deeply ingrained desire within us to be uppermost, to be noticed, to be esteemed, to be praised. Here is the Word of God testifies to it, the starting point for all quarrels. This is it. If you're in the midst of a quarrel right now, I have just told you why. Somewhere in that quarrel, someone is desiring something, and the desire is related to selfish ambition. It is related to that desire to be uppermost. 
I desire. The second step is this. I demand. I demand. You see, I attach my desire. I attach my selfish ambition, my longing to be praised, whether it be in the marriage, whether it be in the home, whether it be relationally or in the church. I attach this desire to things. That's what I do. I attach it to things. And through that thing, I hope to arrive at an end. And the end is my own self-exaltation and self-praise. It might be material things, such as ability, beauty, even our family. It might be spiritual things, such as spiritual gifts and church ministries. It might be opinions on everything from politics to vaccinations. It might be philosophies on everything from healthy living to child rearing. I have attached this basic desire to these things, thereby turning these things into idols. They have become idols. And my friend, you must affirm my idols. You must affirm me in my idols. You must affirm me in these things. You must do things as I do them. And you must see things as I see them. And these things will become conditions for our friendship and for our fellowship. They will be st- become standards by which I will be watching you. I will be watching you. I will be observing you. I will be classifying you. And I will be judging you. I expect you to pay allegiance to my idols. I desire, I demand. The third step, I dislike, I dislike. You refuse to bow down to my idols. Houston, we've got a problem. Big time problem. You refuse to bow down to my idols. We now have a problem of gigantic proportions. My supposed love for you quickly morphs all of a sudden from one moment to the next into disdain and contempt. James calls this back in chapter 3, verses 14 and 16. He calls it bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy. And bitter jealousy has three sisters. The three sisters are always following bitter jealousy around. There goes bitter jealousy, and these three sisters are always in tow, following in the wake. The first is this. Bitter jealousy is always angry, easily agitated, and easily provoked. It is always finding fault with others, and it is always venting and criticizing. It is angry. Bitter jealousy is always moody. It is irritable and resentful. It is easily wronged and offended. It bears grudges against those who don't think like it, look like it, or act like it. And bitter jealousy is touchy. It is like a bone out of joint. It won't allow anyone near it to touch it, to probe it. 
to, to identify the problem. No, no, no. When confronted, it will deflect attention elsewhere. It always, always plays the victim. It is always wronged. It is always offended. And it is the one who is always misunderstood. Those are the three little sisters that follow bitter jealousy everywhere it goes. As I move up the rungs of this ladder, I desire, I demand, I dislike. The fourth rung in this ladder is this. I destroy. I destroy. Verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. There is the cause of quarrels. I destroy. Why do I destroy? Because I dislike. Why do I dislike? Because I have made demands. Why have I made demands? Because I have desires. And what are these desires? They are attached to selfish ambition. You see, for failing, you're in trouble. Because for failing to affirm that to which I have attached my desire to be uppermost, my idols now demand that you be punished. They demand that you be punished. And the punishment I mete out, the goal will be to force you to surrender all the way back to the start to my desires. And so I might use my expressions. All right? Don't go elbowing your spouse or anything like that. Stop it. I might use my expressions. Smirking and snarling, huffing and puffing, pouting and glaring, rolling my eyes and shaking my head. I am seeking to communicate a message. I am seeking to force the other individual to surrender to my desires. I might use my actions. I might choose intimidation, an angry outburst or a hissy fit. Or I might choose isolation. Coldness and aloofness are particularly effective. Or I might choose words. I become harsh and dismissive, malicious and slanderous, sarcastic and negative. And I use my words as weapons to cut and to bite. This is simple arithmetic, friends. It really is. I desire, I demand, I dislike, and therefore I destroy. That is all James says, is saying at the end of chapter 3. And it is certainly what he is saying in the first four or five verses of chapter 4. But it brings us to the fifth step. Uh, there in those first four steps, you have the cause of quarrels. Again, let me state it, state it bluntly so that we're so clear. When you find yourself in the midst of a quarrel, don't start running around wondering what is going on. You now know what's going on. There is only one reason. There is only one cause. Somewhere in the midst of that quarrel lurks selfish ambition. And desires have been attached to that selfish ambition. That those desires have turned and morphed into demands. Those demands have not been met. It has led to dislike. And that dislike is now being manifested in a desire to destroy the quarrels. 
The fifth step, the solution, which brings us to verses 6 through 10 is this. Let me just rhyme them right off, 1 through 5. I desire, I demand, I dislike, I destroy. I must die. There's number five, the solution. I must die. John Piper states it so eloquently. We must, we must kill our addiction to human praise. Must kill it. That selfish ambition that lurks within, that is at the root of all quarrels. It must die. I must die. And James, he introduces this subject in verse 6. He says, God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, the scripture says, God opposes the proud, the individual I've been describing, but gives grace to the humble, the individual who is mortifying love for self. And then he goes on beginning in verse 7, all the way through more or less verse 9, to give six additional steps as to what it means to die to self, what it means to mortify, to kill our addiction to human praise. Here's number one, step number one, submission to God. Verse seven, please do not miss this. It is a commandment. God commands us this day, right at the outset of verse seven, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. We do not like submitting. We hate it, submitting. Submitting to an individual, submitting to God himself, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It goes all the way back to the fall. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve's basic propensity when tempted by Lucifer himself, the serpent, this desire to be out from under God's authority and no longer submitted to God, but to do things their way, act their way, think their way, live their way without any accountability to or responsibility to God himself. Oh, submit yourselves to God. You know, we don't don't like to submit. And even when we do submit, more often than not, we submit externally, but not internally. We submit on the outside, but not the inside. Don't we? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. All the time. One thing I disliked as many things as a boy, but as a boy, you know, maybe one Saturday afternoon a month, my parents decided it was time to go visit our Aunt Jan. I did, not want, I did not want to visit Aunt Jan. I mean, there's so many other things. On a Saturday afternoon, 10, 11-year-old boy, and they're going to haul us in, grab, throw us all in the station wagon, and we're going to drive down and spend the afternoon at Aunt Jan's. I don't want to go to Aunt Jan's. You're going to Aunt Jan's. All right. But I won't like it. I've submitted externally, but I get in the station wagon and I never lift my eyes off my knees and I am communicating to everyone that, yes, I am submitting, but I am not enjoying this. And if I could have things my way, I would not be here right now. Husbands, wives, it doesn't work in a marriage. That, that won't, you've probably figured that out already. 
That, that just doesn't work. It doesn't work in a local church either. Uh, when we are called to, to, to submit to the Lord, and when we are called to, to submit ourselves to, to others in a biblical fashion, I'm not speaking of an unbiblical fashion, in a biblical fashion, God is not looking for mere external conformity. The biblical idea behind submission is joyful surrender. That's what it is. Submission is joyful surrender. It is to enter into what the psalmist declares, I desire to do your will, O God. That is submission. That is joyful surrender. Our joyful surrender to God will be evident in our relationships. If a husband is a raging tyrant in the home, then he is not joyfully surrendering to God. It's a no-brainer. If a wife is a nitpicking irritant in the home, she is not joyfully surrendering to the Lord. If a woman is a gossiping nuisance in the church, she is not joyfully surrendering to the Lord. If a man is a raging bull in the church, he is not joyfully surrendering to the Lord. Our joyful surrender to God will be made evident in our everyday, in and out, 24-7 relationships in which we find ourselves. When your children push the boundaries... Maybe they pushed them already earlier this morning. When your children push the boundaries, your reaction demonstrates the extent of your submission to God. When you disagree with your spouse, your reaction demonstrates the extent of your submission to God. When people don't treat you as you think you deserve, I deserve better, uh, your reaction demonstrates the extent of your surrender to God. When your church won't affirm your personal opinions and preferences, your reaction demonstrates your submission to God. Submit yourselves to the Lord. That is step number one to mortifying self. Submission. Step number two is this. Resistance to Satan. And so carrying on in verse seven, it's the next phrase. Again, it is a command. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. What I want you not to do is I don't want you to extract that statement from its context. Many do in our day and they end up doing crazy things. The phrase, the commandment is found in a context. As a matter of fact, it is sandwiched between two commands. And so you have the command, resist the devil. What is the command that comes before it? Submit yourselves to God. What is the command that comes after it? Start of verse 8, draw near to God. And so in effect, what we have then, submit yourselves to God, draw near to God, get to that one in just a moment, and resist the devil, you have two sides to the same coin. How do you resist the devil? Submit to God. That's how you do it. How do you resist the devil? Draw near to God. That's how we resist him. Give no opportunity to the devil, Paul warns the Ephesians. Why? Because the devil targets. He is a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. And believe you me, he targets. 
He is like the moth drawn to the flame. He is like the flies drawn to the carcass. He is drawn instinctively to frustrated selfish ambition. Wherever there is frustrated selfish ambition, you will find the devil. He will target wounded pride. He goes after discontentment. He has a field day with envy, with malice, and with bitterness. My friend, do you want to engage in spiritual warfare? Do you want to engage in spiritual warfare? Do you want to be on the front lines? Die to self. That is all there is to it. Die to self. Submit yourself to God. Draw near to God. And in so doing, we resist the devil. The third step, I've already mentioned it. Here it is. Nearness to God. Into the eighth verse. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Again, notice, please. There is a command and there is a promise. What is the command? Draw near to God. What is the promise? He will draw near to you. Far too many of us reverse the promise and the command. Far too many of us, perhaps some here this morning, you are sitting around waiting for God to draw near to you before you draw near to him. You're sitting around waiting for a feeling, gust of wind, I don't know. You're sitting around waiting for some sort of inexplicable higher life experience, I don't know. You're sitting around for God to give you the desires, God to grant you the will, God to flick the switch. I don't know. But there you are sitting there. Well, I'm not doing anything. I can't do anything till God does do something. As a Christian, God has already done something. He has caused you to be born again by the word of truth. And he's given you the Holy Spirit. His commandment now is act like it and draw near to me. You've already got all you need. It is the Spirit of God. The issue now is, will you obey or not? That's the issue. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. I know it. I've spoken to men and women. There they are, stuck in the mud. Why doesn't God do something? My friend, why don't you do something? Why doesn't God do something? I'm waiting for God to do this. I'm waiting for God to do that. I'm waiting for God to just rid me of this. I'm waiting for God to triumph over this in my life. I'm waiting for God to give me that inclination. I'm waiting for God to give me those desires. I don't have those desires. Here I am floundering spiritually. And here I am, I'm not getting anywhere. Why doesn't God do something? My friend, the command is this, draw near to God. Avail yourself of the means he has given you. The means he has dropped at your feet. Primarily the word of God. Avail yourself of it, immerse yourself in it, devour it so that the word of Christ dwells in you. That is the spirit of God dwells in you. And as the word of Christ dwells in you, God draws near to us. Oh, there is a command and there is a promise. Nearness to God. It is a call to devotion. It is a call to rid ourselves, rid ourselves of anything that stifles our enjoyment of those means by which God draws near to the soul. Did you catch that? The command to draw near to God is a command to rid our lives of those things that stifle our desire to draw near to God in those means 
in which he has promised to visit us by the Spirit of God. You hear it all the time. Scripture reading is dry. Scripture reading is dry because you're living in the world. You've, you've, you've squashed it. You, 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 you've, you've delayed it. You've squished it. You, 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 the desire is not there because the heart is elsewhere. And there the man, there the woman sits wondering what's going on and what's the solution. Why doesn't God do something? No, my friend, why don't you do something? Why don't you draw near to God and avail yourself of those things he has given to you and make sure you are ridding your life of those things which distort and twist your appetite and desire for the heavenly? This time of year, we trim trees, right? Should have done it by now. They're, bo- they're budding. So one of you came over a couple of Saturdays ago to help me trim my trees. That's actually a bold statement. I, uh, I helped you trim my trees. That's near the truth. I helped you <laughs> trim my trees, and I'm very thankful for that. The limbs had to go. It was overgrown. Oh, is your life overgrown? It's just overgrown, and you're stagnant. And my friend, it's your own fault you're stagnant. Own fault. Because you're in the muck and the mire too much. And your mind is in places it should not be. And your time is spent and devoted to things that really, these things may be morally neutral, but they do nothing to help you on your journey home spiritually. And as a matter of fact, they act counter to cultivating that, that fine desire to immerse oneself in God's Word. It's time to get out the chainsaw, crank it up, and start trimming some of the limbs. Oh, draw near to God. Peter puts it this way. Put away. There it is. Trim the tree. Put away all malice. Put it away. And all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Sounds very much like our text in James 4, doesn't it? And then what does Peter say? Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by you may grow up to salvation. There it is. You want to draw near to the Lord? Do you want to grow up to salvation? Well, then you must feed yourself with pure spiritual milk that is drawn near to God. You are never going to draw near to God if all those limbs are overhung and touching the ground and just making an absolute mess of things. No, you need to take out the saw and start trimming. And you need to trim, says Peter, malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. All of those things rooted in that spirit of selfish ambition. Draw near to God. Here's the fourth step. Cleansed hands. Verse 8, still, middle of the verse. Cleanse your hands. You sinners, it has a very specific Old Testament context. When the priests embarked on their public ministry involving the temple, there was a one-time washing of their entire body. And subsequent to that, whenever they engaged in temple service, they had to wash what beforehand? Their hands and their feet. In these two acts, we have the doctrines of justification and sanctification. There is a one-time cleansing. We come to God, we come to God through the Lord Jesus by faith. Yes, we've recognized our sin, we've recognized we deserve God's judgment, and by the Spirit of God, we turn to God, and we trust in the provision He has made for us as sinners, namely the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby He has paid the penalty for our sin in full, and He has risen victorious over death, thereby demonstrating that the curse of the law was laid on Him 
him in full and he has paid it in full and it no longer applies to those who are one with him through faith. There you have it, a one-time washing. Oh, but subsequent to that, we engage in sanctification, do we not? The Lord Jesus, as he enters into the upper room, remember John 13, he wants to wash their feet, right? And what's Peter's reply? Not just my feet, my whole body. And what's Christ's reply? You don't need it, the whole body. You don't need it. But if I do not wash you, you are already clean, but if I do not wash you, that is your feet, you have no share in me. It is the doctrine of sanctification. Fellowship with Christ hinges upon sanctification. Your iniquities, we read in Isaiah 59, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This hiding of God's face on account of our sins, unconfessed sins, has consequences. It stifles prayer. Just stifles it. It deadens the word of God. Rather than being living and abiding, it becomes a dead letter, a dead book. It chokes fellowship with other believers takes away joy and peace, takes away comfort and assurance. It leads to discouragement. It leads to emotional distress. It leads to mental anguish. How much of what ails us is simply Christ's statement in action? If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. That's an interesting question. How much of what ails us right now in our own lives, personal lives, is simply that statement in action. If I do not wash you, sanctification, you have no share with me. There are problems. Oh, search me, O oh God, and know my heart today. Try me, O oh Savior. Know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be some wicked way in me. Cleanse me from every sin and set me free. Cleansed hands. Number five, purified hearts. Picking it up from the start of verse eight. So you follow the flow. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We've had that phrase before in this book. It's a reference to the man, the woman who is of two souls. Affections, affections dragged, drawn in two different directions. Affections pulled in two different ways. Heaven and earth, if you like. Uh, godly and the diabolical. The kingdom of Christ and, 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 and the world. That there is living in this world day in and day out, this constant drag upon our souls, isn't there? There is this, this constant pull toward the world. There is this constant temptation to fall into double-mindedness. And how often we find ourselves, and sometimes it, it almost, it just happens without perception, beyond recognition. We, 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 we just pause Someday, at some moment, some time, and all of a sudden re realize, I've drifted. I've drifted. 
it, it, it has been so subtle, almost unrecognizable, but being so far now from where I once was, it's beyond any shadow of a doubt. I am not what I once was. And I am a double-minded man. And here is the command when that occurs. We are to purify our hearts. Purify our hearts. I was uh, struck by this just the other day. I, I, I pray it helps. Maybe it was a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, I was watching some sports. I don't know what it was. There it was on the television. And the, and the clouds kind of rolled in and it darkened. We have a little antenna on the side of the house. And when those clouds roll in, the signal for certain channels, it's gone. And all there is is static, right? That if the clouds aren't there, all that interference, it's okay. I get a clear picture. But the moment there's the slightest interference, the picture goes. That's our lives, folks. Oh, the interference the world brings. Misplaced affections. Misplaced longings. Misplaced desires. Ambitions as we set things on below rather than above, and they begin to cloud our hearts, whereby the signal is no longer coming in. Oh, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Purify your hearts by drawing near to God. Oh, wash me thoroughly, O oh Lord, from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. And the sixth step in mortifying Killing self. Genuine repentance. Verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Genuine repentance. I say genuine repentance to differentiate it from that which is disingenuous. Our proper, what is our proper posture when it comes to our sin. What is our proper posture when, when God uses the Word, which is living and active, and He actually uses it and wields it, the Spirit of God, to pierce deep within? I mean, the sword really enters in. Right there, left side between the third and the fourth rib, marrow, fat, in it goes. And it is piercing deep within. Here James describes the only reasonable response when we see ourselves in the light of God's word and the Spirit of God brings about conviction for sin. Oh, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. We feel the weight of our sin and are burdened by it. It's not a bad thing. We then run to the cross, don't we? We run to the cross. And we pause for a moment. And uh, we reflect. And we think to ourselves, you know, when they spit upon him, as I have now sinned, I have just added my spittle to all that they spat and heaped upon him. You know, in, in this sin, tracing it right back in this context of selfish ambition, 
in this sin and what I have done and the way I've been thinking or the way I've been acting, the way I've been speaking, I have just added my voice to the scoffers. The volume just went up. Scoffers. That in this sin, I have just pulled one of the nails out of my pocket and I have lifted up a hammer and I have driven the nail through his hand. I see this. I understand this. And in spite of it all, I revel in the fact that this great God through his son, the Lord Jesus, extends to me such boundless grace. In the Lord Jesus, he has become to me a heavenly father who is willing to forgive me my sins. That if I confess my sins, He is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. You see, I I, I am struck as I stand before Calvary's cross by the reality that this great salvation, the only thing, the only thing I have brought to salvation are my sins to be forgiven. That's it. That's the only thing I have contributed. It's the only thing I've set on the table. The only thing I bring that enters into the equation are my sins to be forgiven. And as I realize this and process all of this, oh, my, mor- my, my laughter is turned to mourning. My joy is turned to gloom. Uh, subsequently, my gloom and my mourning are turned into joy, true biblical joy, because I can only laugh. I can only laugh when I have shed tears for my sin. I can only truly laugh. I can only truly rejoice. I can only truly exult and revel and celebrate when I have shed tears for my sin. That is where James leads us. He leads us through these six steps as he explains what it means. Back in the sixth verse, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And now he brings us full circle in the tenth verse. Humble yourselves. He has just explained how. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And what will the Lord do? He will exalt you. He will exalt you in the Lord Jesus Christ. God lifts us up by killing our selfish ambition. And my friends, I know it seems counterintuitive, but that is grace upon grace. Oh, that is grace. For the Spirit of God to work to such a degree within that we are brought to face our sin in the sight of God. And then... As a result of that humbling influence, the Spirit of God brings us face to face with the only remedy for our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. And to know that God takes us poor sinners and exalts us by making us part of His family, by virtue of uniting us with the Lord Jesus, here we have grace upon grace. And so for the unbeliever, there you sit perhaps this day, in our presence, in God's presence, 
you have heard the word. And God's command to you as a creature and and a God who loves you as one of his creatures, his command to you is simply this. You must look to the Lord Jesus. You must come clean before God. Come clean. Confess your sin. Confess the life you've lived and confess the deep-seated enmity toward God. And you must look to the provision he has made, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christian, there you are. There you are. And uh, you and your wife, you and your husband, things are not as they should be. The household, the children, I don't know, cousins, grandpa, grandma, whoever, strain upon strain. Neighbor, fellow believer here at the church, believer elsewhere. And I pray the Spirit of God speaks to you through this church, through this text, that the starting point is our own sin, sinful condition. And the end point is to be exalted by God Himself in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That as we put to death selfish ambition, and as we draw near to God, we enter into the starting point for resolving every conflict, every quarrel, every strife, every situation that plagues us. That is James' message. I pray we do not miss it. I pray by the Spirit of God we faithfully apply it and He helps us to do so. I pray by the Spirit of God He aids us, enabling us to live in accordance with the Word of God. And so bow with me now as we pray together, asking that very thing. Our Father, how desperately we need your help. How desperately we need you to pour out upon our hearts day after day uh, your sustaining and strengthening grace. How we need your word and your spirit to hold it up to our sight so that we see ourselves as we are and we see ourselves as we are in you, the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would do a work in us this day that you alone can do. And we pray that you would give a desire. We pray that you would give humility. We pray that you would enlarge and heighten love and joy and peace. We ask all this for the furtherance of your kingdom in us, through us, and around us. And we ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen.